The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. so glad to have Pastor Troy DeBruin uh, preaching with us tonight. Many of you will know Troy well. Uh, he served for 13 years as the youth pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and there are very few days or weeks that go by that I'm not thankful for Troy and what he did with our youth program uh, prior to, to me coming. He now serves as the uh, pastor of Proclamation Presbyterian Church in Mount Joy, uh, where he's served since uh, 2013, um, and so we're uh, glad to have him now come and share God's Word with us tonight. Thank you, Chris. It is indeed a privilege and a pleasure to be back with you. I bring greetings from Proclamation Presbyterian Church, your brothers and sisters there. We will be forever grateful to you, and we continue to be grateful and often pray for you. Uh, we would not be where we were, where we are now, were it not for your prayers and your support and uh, your partnership in the gospel. We're very thankful for you and thankful to be there, uh, striving to proclaim the gospel in the Mount Joy E-Town area. Uh, this evening, I will be reading from Genesis chapter 29. I do encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. I believe it's page 23 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, I will be reading verses 1 through 30 in just a moment. Uh, as we look to God's Word this evening, it's always good to be reminded that this is indeed the Word of God. It's true forever. It's a life-giving, precious gift. It's our hope and our prayer that by the Holy Spirit we will receive it as such tonight. Genesis chapter 29 and verses 1 through 30. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, 
Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and Jacob served Laban for another seven years. This is indeed the word of God for the people of God this evening. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us all this evening, that we might be able to understand your word, that we would be able to behold your glory, that your spirit would work in us what is pleasing in your sight, and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and strengthen our faith this evening. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord and coming King. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century American theologian, a Congregationalist pastor, and the earliest sermon manuscript that we have from him was when he was only 18 years old, he preached this sermon, and it was titled Christian Happiness. And in this sermon, Edwards contends that Christians, that we can be happy, or we might say that we can have joy, whatever our outward circumstances may be. And then he makes his case in three propositions, and these are summarized in Tim Keller's excellent book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So in that sermon, Edwards wrote that Christians can be happy, we can have joy, whatever our outward circumstances, because of three things. First of all, because our bad things will work out for good. And we have that familiar, that wonderful promise from Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. So first, their bad things will work out for good. Second, their good things... And by good things, he's talking about things like our adoption into God's family, justification in God's sight, our union with Christ, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These good things can never be taken away. And then third, our best things, our best things, life in heaven with Jesus and with all God's people, the new heavens and the new earth, God's people enjoying God's presence in God's kingdom, our best things are yet to come. These are truths 
that the Christian can count on, truths that help us make sense of the changing and the difficult circumstances of our lives. Our bad things will be turned to good. Our good things can never be taken away. And the best things are yet to come. It's quite a sermon for an 18-year-old to write and to proclaim. But when you think about these truths, and when you connect them to specific stories and specific promises from God's word, then they can be used by God to bring you comfort and hope and encouragement and peace. As Christians this evening, as people who know the one true and living God, who repent of our sin and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, who offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, people who seek to glorify God and all that we think and say and do, we want to learn to think big and high and deep. We want to have these truths on our mind, to realize who God is, what he has done, who we are in Christ and indeed, even where history is going. This helps us put our sufferings in perspective. And we want to put them in perspective by remembering Christ's suffering on our behalf, his promises to us, what he himself is accomplishing. One of these truths will become clear as we study this passage tonight. It's, it becomes clear throughout the book of Genesis. Indeed, it's clear throughout our study of the Bible. And that is this, that this is God's world. It is his story. It's the story of what God himself is doing. Crossway has recently published a new study Bible. It's called the Story of Redemption Bible, a journey through the unfolding promises of God. And listen to how they describe the story. It is no exaggeration to say that the Bible is the most sweeping and engrossing and enthralling epic ever written. It spans the entire history of humanity from Adam's first breath in the Garden of Eden to the final song of the redeemed in eternity. It tells of kings crowned and deposed, nations created and destroyed, dynasties raised up and brought to the ground, armies clash, cities rise and fall, priests sing and sacrifice, and prophets point to the future. And through it all, through the triumphs, the defeats, the rejoicing, the weeping of ordinary men and women, God is carrying out, step by step, his mind-blowing plan to save mankind from destruction. It's not a simple story, at least not in the sense of a reader's being able to exhaust its depth and meaning in one sitting. No, the Bible story is beautifully complex. Dozens of themes, hundreds of symbols weave together like a symphony until they all come to rest on the shoulders of one man, a carpenter named Jesus from a little town called Nazareth. And then, just like those who saw him with their own eyes, we begin to realize that this man is the goal of everything. From the very beginning, the promises are about him. The crown has been forged for his head. The prophets have spoken about him as the last prophet himself cried out, Behold, this is he. And perhaps the most amazing thing about the Bible's, Bible's epic story is that it is history, not fiction. The story that I just read, the stories that you read throughout the Bible, they all actually happened. As inspiring and wonderful as stories can be, this one, with all its twists and turns, all its ups and downs, is greater than any other because it tells what actually is. 
God really did create human beings in his image. They really did rebel against his rule. And then he really did send his own son, our savior, to save us from our sin. Therefore, the Bible is not just any story, not just any epic. It is our story. It is our epic. And this story tonight from Genesis 29 is part of that epic story. Tonight we get a glimpse from one scene in history of what God is doing to lead to Jesus. And if we look closely, if we listen carefully to this story, it will help us tonight. It will help you. It will help me trust God in the midst of the varying and the unexpected circumstances of our lives and through the difficulties of our lives. And we can see tonight that for the child of God, for the children of the covenant, which Jacob was, and you are, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, Paul would write in Galatians, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So for the children of God, the children of the covenant, which Jacob was, and you are, if your faith is in Jesus, no matter what you do, no matter what happens in your life, whether it's good or bad from your perspective, God loves you. He is actively working for your eternal good. He is fulfilling his promises and he is moving your story and his story forward to its grand conclusion. So beloved, if you have ever had something bad happen in your life, if you've ever had something bad happen to you, if you have ever done something that you later regretted, and wish that you could go back and change. If you have ever doubted God's love for you, if tonight you are are having trouble waiting on God to fulfill his promises for you, then this story is for you. In this story, very simply summarized, God provides a wife for Jacob from the daughters of his mother's brother Laban in Haran, but not quite the way Jacob expected Behold, it was Leah. But it's God who's at work here. God who is at work in all the details to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises. This is God's story. This is God's world, and God does indeed move in mysterious ways. There are two main developments in this story. In verses 1 through 14, Jacob meets Rachel. And then in verses 15 through 30, Jacob serves Laban to marry Rachel, but he has quite the surprise on the morning after his wedding. So first, Jacob meets Rachel, or he might say all signs are pointing to Rachel in verses 1 through 14. Chapter 29 begins with the word then, and we want to know what that word is pointing us back to, so we need a little bit of context there. And it's pointing us back to chapter 28, where Jacob had his dream and his promise, where God appears to Jacob. And he confirms to Jacob the promise, the covenant that he had made with Jacob's grandfather Abraham and with his father Isaac, that this promise was going to indeed be continued to Jacob himself, including the promise of offspring, which would require a wife. And then God also promises to be with Jacob and to keep him. And so Jacob then went on his journey, we're told in verse 1 to find a wife. And that phrase literally means that he picked up his feet. There was a spring in his steps. And we can understand why, right? He's excited. 
He's on this journey, and he's going to find a wife. So he's excited. He's on a mission. And as he goes on this mission, he goes with the promise of the Lord. The Lord will be with him. The Lord will protect him. The Lord will provide for him. And Jacob does indeed prosper in his search. And all signs are pointing to Rachel at first. There is so much clear repetition pointing us to Rachel here. Now to see this and to understand its significance, again, we need to back up just a couple pages to Genesis chapter 27. In Genesis 27 verse 43, Rebekah, Jacob's mother, had told him, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. So that's the words of his mother in his mind. And then also in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, Isaac, Jacob's father, tells him to go to the house of his mother's father and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And so now here we are in chapter 29, verse 4, and Jacob sees these shepherds and he asks them, where do you come from? And they answer, from Haran. And Jacob is thinking, that's where I'm going to meet Laban. I'm trying to find Laban. So he asked them, do you know Laban? And what do they say? We know him. In verse 6, Rachel, his daughter, is coming. So now what is Jacob thinking? He's thinking, this could be my wife, right? He's got to go to Haran. He's got to meet Laban and marry one of his daughters. So Isaac told Jacob, you're to marry one of the daughters of Laban. And here one comes. Could this be her? And this will be emphasized eight more times in this opening section. Verse 10, Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. That phrase is repeated three times in that one verse, verse 10. Here and then also the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Laban, his mother's brother. Laban, his mother's brother. Laban, his mother's brother. Okay, we get it, right? But there's more. In verse 12, Jacob told Rachel he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And then Rachel runs and she tells her dad. Verse 13, Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son. Verse 14, Laban said to Jacob, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman. It's amazing. More than 10 times this idea is repeated. So the narrator is making it obvious. He's saying you cannot miss this. It's like a bright flashing neon sign saying of Rachel to Jacob and to us, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one. Over and over and over and over again. But was it? As we read on in verses 15 through 30, we come to the climax of the story. We see, behold, it was Leah. But at first, it seemed to be Rachel. Why? Well, we've already seen in the first section the emphasis on Rachel, how indeed she is from the right family. In the next section, there'll even be more evidence. We learn further that Rachel is beautiful, that Jacob loves her. 
and then Jacob and Laban enter into this agreement, some kind of business deal. And here's something for us to consider, not the main point of the passage, but this account is so different from the one in Genesis chapter 24, where this very same Laban meets the servant of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Abraham was looking for a wife for Jacob's father, Isaac. And in Genesis 24, the account is permeated with the Lord. It's saturated with the servant's prayers and his worship and his thanksgiving and his praise. And Laban himself confesses that this is all the Lord's doing. But here in chapter 29, there's no mention of the Lord at all. No mention of prayer, no mention of praise, no mention of thanksgiving. Not until we get down to verse 31, and it's Leah herself who gives thanks to the Lord. But instead, what we have here is simply this arrangement. Laban says, Jacob, you shouldn't serve me for nothing. So what will your wages be? And it was customary at that time for the groom-to-be to pay a bridal price to the bride-to-be's family. Today, we think of engagement rings, right? So there's some kind of gift, some kind of sign. But Jacob goes above and beyond. Seven years of his wages. That is quite a ring. There's any young men here waiting to get married? You better start saving up. Jacob works the seven years. Now notice verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Now I don't think that the Bible lifts Jacob up as the ideal model husband, but it is clear that he truly loves Rachel, that he wants her as his wife. And so after working and waiting for seven years, it's time for the wedding. And now comes the climax of this account. And this is where it gets crazy. The day has come. The wedding guests are gathered. The feast is prepared. The days arrive. The celebration begins all day long. Jacob and and Rachel, are they going through the festivities? Are they going through the traditions? But then in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah, and do you wonder, did she even want to go? But he takes his daughter Leah, he brings her to Jacob, and Jacob enjoys God's good gift designed for marriage with his wife, thinking that it was Rachel, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah? And we say, what? What in the world is going on here? How could this happen? Now, we might get sidetracked by those details. How in the world could this happen? And that's not the main point, but we think, well, back then, there's no artificial light. They're in a tent. It's probably very dark. They may have had too much wine throughout the day. It's a realistic possibility. She probably has a veil over his face. In fact, when I was talking about this a while ago with uh, Seth Dunn, he's a chaplain in the Army Reserves that works for us at Proclamation. He told me that when he was in chaplain school, the rabbi in his squad told him that because of this very account, there is a tradition in the Orthodox Jewish community that at the beginning of the wedding, the groom will run out and find his bride-to-be and lift the veil to make sure it's the woman that he wants to marry. And then he runs back in. Well, the how is not really essential here. We can't know for sure. But what we want to consider is this. What is the Lord doing in all this? This seems so unusual, so crazy to us. And we'll consider two things. The second will be more prominent, more clear than the first. But first, I believe that the Lord is doing something here in Jacob's life. Now, yes, he's doing something in everyone's life. Jacob 
Laban, Rachel, Leah. One pastor has said God is doing 10,000 things at once, and we might be aware of three of them. So God certainly is at work, but, but certainly he's at work in Jacob's life, and we see that with clues in the text. Because here, the tables are turned on Jacob. This time, Jacob is on the receiving end of the deception. In verse 25, Jacob asks, why have you deceived me? And that's basically the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 27, verse 35, when Isaac said to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. You might remember that story. Jacob and Esau are twins and Jacob wants the blessing from his father and he goes in disguised as his brother Esau and deceives him. So Jacob has done the same kind of thing before. In Genesis 27, it was two brothers who were switched because their father couldn't see. Here, it's two, sw- two sisters who are switched because in some sense, Jacob could not see. So Jacob has been the deceiver, but now he is the deceived. But also notice Laban's explanation in verse 26. It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Well, back in chapter 27, Jacob lied at least twice to his father, telling him that he was the firstborn, seeking the blessing that was normally given to the firstborn. So Jacob had to sense the irony here. Beloved, this is a clear demonstration of the Lord's presence. Just as much as in the dream with the latter. Jacob responded in that scenario by saying, I did not know the Lord was in this place. And all of a sudden, Jacob had this unexpected encounter with God after that dream. But this is just as clear a proclamation. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is at work. The Lord may not be mentioned by name yet in this chapter, but just as in the book of Esther, it is the Lord who is at work accomplishing his plan. So what do we know about what is happening here? What do we know? We know that the Lord is indeed with Jacob. He has promised to be with Jacob. So the Lord is with Jacob. We know that the Lord has chosen Jacob. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. So we know the Lord's with Jacob. The Lord has chosen Jacob. And we know the Lord loves Jacob. Scriptures confirm that for us. Malachi 1, Romans 9, he loves Jacob. He has chosen Jacob. He is with Jacob. So, beloved, all that the Lord does here, while Jacob may not understand it, we may not understand it, but all that the Lord does here is out of love. It is aimed at Jacob's eternal good. And maybe you want to say, what? How does that make sense? But God is not absent here. He's not a bystander. God is not just wondering, okay, how is this going to play out? He's not thinking, oh my goodness, Laban, what are you doing? You just messed up my plan. No, God is present. He is with Jacob. He loves Jacob. He has chosen Jacob. He is acting out of his love for Jacob, and he's acting for his good. Beloved, God is so wise. He's perfectly wise. He is so powerful. He is perfectly almighty in his power, and he is so far above us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. The Lord can take things, even things that hurt us deeply, that don't seem good at all, indeed things that are evil, 
and he can use them and turn them for our good. And beloved, that is exactly what he does every time. It's not just that he can do that. It's that he does do that. Every time. For every child of God. He will do it here for Jacob. Even though this very well may also be part of the refining process for Jacob's life. Teaching Jacob to turn from his own ways and trust in the Lord. He will do it here for Jacob. And he will do it for you. He will do it for you, beloved. He will do it for every one of his children. No, perhaps you're in the midst of some difficult circumstance tonight. It may be that the Lord is using it to refine you, to humble you, to reveal himself to you so that you may know him and love him and trust him more. Or it may be that you are in the midst of some terrible circumstance. You may feel trapped. You may feel caught off guard, betrayed, violated, sinned against. Beloved, God has not forsaken you. He is with you. He loves you. He will work for your good. And this becomes abundantly clear in the second consideration here. What the Lord is doing in the grand story of redemption. Remember, this is God's story. He is at work. And it is an epic story. And this is just one small window into that story. All signs were pointing to Rachel. And Rachel would indeed become Jacob's wife. And the Lord would indeed have a plan for Rachel and work in and through her. Jacob would have to work another seven years for Rachel, which he does, and there's no sign that he complained about it. But all signs were pointing to Rachel. Rachel would indeed become Jacob's wife, but behold, it was Leah. So Rachel was not the one that the Lord had chosen. Jacob had chosen her, but the Lord had chosen Leah. Let me just interject a sidebar here for a moment. I know you are in the midst of a big transition here at Westminster, and we are praying with you through that transition. But may I just encourage you to trust the Lord in the midst of this transition. You may think it's Rachel, and it might be Leah when you're looking for the next man to come and be the shepherd of this congregation, the Lord will guide you and he will bring you the right man to serve you and shepherd you. Jacob had chosen Rachel, but the Lord had chosen Leah. Now Jacob does not know this yet. Listen carefully. Jacob does not know this yet. Nor does Rachel, nor does Laban, nor does Leah. But if you look at the end of chapter 29, verse 35, it's talking about the children that are now being born. It's talking about Leah and her children. Look at verse 35. And she, Leah, conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. So it is Leah who gives birth to Judah. And who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered and can open the scrolls and its seals in Revelation 5. Beloved, who is the one before whom all the living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and sing to saying, worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who is that one? Beloved, do you see what God is doing? The grand story of redemption. So what happens here in Genesis 29? What happens here from a human perspective, we may be appalled at what happens here. It may seem crazy to us. It's full of deception. It's full of pain. And it would lead to more pain and more conflict. But we must consider God's perspective. And learn to think high and deep and big about it. Because when we do that, we will see that this, this, Genesis 29, this will lead to nothing less than the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God is at work. This would lead to the birth of the offspring of the woman who had come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, from the line of Leah. He is the one through whom the covenant will ultimately be fulfilled. He is the one who would bring God's blessing to all the nations. It's the line of Leah, not Rachel, that will give birth to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see what God is doing? He's working out his sovereign purposes through the unchosen, the unloved, the forgotten, the neglected, and in Jacob's mind, the wrong wife. God will use this unloved daughter and wife to give birth to the Savior of the world. Behold, it was Leah. And we must recognize this was not plan B for God. It was always Leah. It was never Rachel. This was always God's plan A. God moves in a mysterious way, beloved, though you may not be able to see it. Though it may be hard, God's people have always had to walk by faith. Faith in what the Old Testament sacrifices represented, faith in a one who would come to perfectly obey the law, and this is what God's people will have to do here. You might not be able to see. What is God doing? Why is this happening? And you may be asking those very questions of circumstances in your own life today. What is God doing? Why is this happening? I cannot see how any good at all can come from this. But may we walk by faith. Beloved, God is not absent. He does not forsake his people. He is working his plan for your eternal good, though it may be hard, though you may not be able to see it. If you are a child of Abraham, through faith in Jesus Christ, the offspring of the line of Leah, then God is always working his plan A in your life. And beloved, we can have confidence, we can have hope. It is true, our bad will be turned to good. Our good can never be taken away. And our best is yet to come. Behold our glorious God. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are 
our God and King. It is you who reigns over all. You are the God who is in the heavens, who does as he pleases. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion extends throughout all generations. There is no one who can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? May you comfort and encourage your people this evening. May we trust in you. May we look to you in our difficult times and know that you love us, that you have perfect wisdom, that you are at work. Father, may you encourage your people this evening and may we walk by faith as we wait for your ultimate promise to be fulfilled, for our Savior Jesus Christ to come again, for us to see him with our own eyes face to face. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.